Welcome to Om Times TV, a division of Om Times Media and Broadcasting. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgbeer. Hello and welcome. Life's twists and turns are endlessly fascinating and repeatedly we find that synchronicity, the people we meet and the books we read that open up new pathways in our minds are pivotal in moving us in different, sometimes even unimagined, directions. Since 1995, Clayton Stedman worked in the education, training and coaching business, focusing on business as a spiritual path. Then in 2004, he discovered consciousness, kinesiology, and went on to facilitate over 9.8 million CK calibrations, create over 10 consciousness assessments, and several unique energetic medicine protocols. And then he co-founded a company called Focus Life Force Energy with Jeffrey Stegman, which now broadcasts high consciousness fields into the lives of thousands of people in over 80 countries. What were the synchronicities, interests, people, and most important books that shifted and expanded Clayton Stedman's consciousness and influenced his thinking? Let's find out. Clayton Stedman, welcome. Thank you, Sandy. Good to see you again. You too. So you say that books have allowed you to travel to other parts of the world, to sit mm -hmm. with the wisest beings that have lived and to have conversations with those people in a small way. That is a really interesting description of what books can do for us. Tell us a bit more about your relationship with books. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's a way to explore the world we live in. Um, you know, I grew up in a kind of a small town and my parents, they were, they were brought up in the, you know, in the dirty thirties. Right. And they just worked, you know, when they got good jobs, they just worked all the time and they did really well for themselves. They kept buying homes in the Toronto area, but they never took holidays. I, I took, well, they took one holiday in the 19 years that I lived at home. So there was a lot about the world that I wanted to understand and experience. And um, other than watching, um, you know, documentaries on television, because the, the interweb wasn't really a thing back then, books were the way that I got to explore the world. And um, yeah, I, I think of them, I was surprised when I was writing that little description that I, I think of them as um, friends in some ways. They are, aren't they? And the people we meet in them are friends. And we often, you know, oh, I want to visit that friend again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, what are they doing now? <laughs> what are they doing now? Oh, I'll tell you a funny story. 
Um, so there's this thing that happens when people see you all the time online, of course, you know that. And um, they, they feel like they know you because they spend all this time with you. And I was, um, I was watching this series, uh, an Oprah Winfrey series that we bought on a, a CD set. And she was talking about Ringo Starr. And Ringo Starr, um, she had a, from the Beatles, she had a picture of him in a room as a young girl. And she finally got to interview him. And she just thought they would automatically be friends and talking every week because she spent a lot of her youth with him. So even if Oprah Winfrey has that happen to her, you know what happens to us? And it's just part of the human condition. Yeah. You know, we spend so much time with a person, either with a poster of them or reading a book or, you know, watching their YouTube channel or, or their documentaries, whatever, that people feel like they, well, we, they feel like they know, they know you and we feel like we know them. Yeah. Yeah. So, We're in yeah. each other's living rooms, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what was it like for you to have to pick only 10 books? Well, I thought it was going to be difficult. I have about 700 books in my library. Um, I do have some that I haven't read and I have some that I've read, you know, 30 or 40 times. I was an avid reader or, you know, earlier in my life as I've gotten, you know, into my middle, middle years, we'll call them. I'm, uh, I'm working more than reading. That's for sure. Uh, so for me, it wasn't that difficult. I, I just prayed about it and I, uh, you know, okay, what, how do we, you know, what's, what's your will for me, Lord, in this situation? And I, the uh, answer I got was, okay, start from when you're young and go to when you're older. That'll help. That'll help calm down the gerbils. You know, it's like, Oh no, only 10. I can't do it. So, so that, and then that then, then started to come. It's like, okay, well that, okay, I can do that. So I got the first one and then I got the fourth one. Then I got the third one. Then I got the eighth one. You know how that happens with your mind. Yeah. Jump around, so. Yeah. Yeah. So the list, uh, as you gave it to us, is approximately in order of the influence that they've had on the younger you all the way up to more recent times. Yes. So the first book is one that you say you were a bit surprised when this one came to mind as the first book, and it is How to Get Control of Your Time and Your Life by Alan Lakin. And this was published in 1973. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. It's not a very... Um... It's not a very romantic kind of book, you know. You, if you like to make a good impression, you're not going to start with a very technical kind of personal development book. But that's what came up, and um, you know, as I said, I was a my parents worked the same job from the time I was born to the time I left home. Both had the same job. We lived in the same house, and so I didn't get to, you know, I didn't really understand how different people lived until I got into maybe I was eleven or twelve, and I started realizing. You know, some people didn't get up at the same time every day and go to the same job. I mean, it sounds foolish, but uh, at some point I realized that people led very different lives. And, you know, and there's some other lives that I thought were better than ours, put it that way. Because <laughs> my parents worked a lot. I, you know, they gave me a key, you know, on a string and they sent me to school. And I walked to school and walked home, let myself in the house. And I was well taken care of. I, you know, we had a nice house and there was always lots of food and but that's just the way that they managed their schedules. And, and other people had different schedules. They had very different lives. They went places, they traveled, they took the summer off, they took long holidays. They did all types of things that we didn't do. And I was like, well, how do they do that? You know, <laughs> it's like, cause it goes with my parents is like, well, we can't afford that. It's like, well, 
you know, they ended up owning five homes be before they retired because they just kept buying homes and working because they were, they were brought up dirt poor. And, you know, they were one of the few, you know, not a lot of people are financially free at that time in their life. So they, they did well and I'm happy for them. But as a young man at 11 or 12 or 13, I was like, well, how do I create that life where they get to do all those things that I hear from my friends at school or I see on television or hear about in the news? So I came across this book and it's like, I started reading it and reading it. And I, read, I don't know how many times I read that book. It's some dog-eared book in, the, in a banker's box somewhere right now. But it really, it opened the door to the possibility of, so if I can learn how to control my time, then I can kind of get control of, of my life and, and create a different life. So did that change the way you navigate then? Well, one of the benefits of it is it uh, put me in a position of taking responsibility for my future. And that was a gift for Marilyn Lakin. Thank you, Alan. If you, if you can hear that, um, it's like, okay, you know, take responsibility for the life you want to create. And, um, and here's how you can do it. Mm. And there may be better authors at that or better teachers, but he was the one I came across. It was a probably a $3 paperback book. If I, you know, if I didn't get it at a used bookstore, um, so that, that, I think that was the, you know, and I hadn't had that thought before just talking to you. So <laughs> I guess you're doing a good job of pulling stuff out of me that I wasn't really aware of. Uh, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there are so many books written about time management and I'm always thinking about it, but I don't do a good job, you know. <laughs> I think, okay, today I'm going to focus, you know, a couple of hours on this and a couple of hours on that, and it never happens. You know, things come in, I get distracted. Yes. Never happens. So I'm probably not a very good timekeeper, although I am always punctual. Yeah, we all have to find a time management style that gives us joy and freedom. That mm. it seems to be, and you know, to allow ourselves to find our own style. And, you know, you, you might be a little more unstructured than most, but from what I can tell, you have a pretty good life. So maybe you're better at it than you think. Hmm. Well, book number two is another intriguing mm. one. What's in your name? You are your name by Alfred J. Parker. Yes. Well, this one has a caveat attached to it. So, yes. When I was a young man, I was traveling. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, what are you going to do with your life, young man? That's the, a big question for, you know, those in our teen years. And I decided I needed to see the world and uh, probably partly due to that influence I talked about before where I've seen all these people living in different, different lives and wonder how they did it, you know. So I decided I wanted to travel and see the world before I made a decision as to what I was going to do with my life. Um, so I was uh, traveling across Canada in a truck and camper and I ended up in Edmonton and I started taking all these personal development courses, as many as I could afford and the time and the money, I would take as many as I could. And I met this guy at a course and, you know, some one of my friends had done a name analysis with him and he was shocked at how much this person could tell from their name and their birthday. And I was like, okay, so I, I, I got one done and I was, I was almost overwhelmed by how accurate it was. 
I've never seen a lot of accuracy in astrology. I think some types of astrology have a lot of merit. I just didn't see it. But this was profound. So uh, I found out where he studied that concept, and it came from a philosophical organization that I, um, I sort of took a few courses from them. And point where I, I thought I needed to get really good at some philosophical foundation. And then I could compare other things to it as I got older. That's what I've seen in other people that I respected. So I committed to be part of this philosophy. Uh, it's called the Cavalry philosophy. It still is called that. I spent 11 years in it. And um, the relationship between mathematics, language, and consciousness was really the foundation of that philosophy in my mind. I still hold uh, a lot of esteem for the principles the caveat part is, um, you know, the leader of that organization uh, was um, tried and convicted of sexual abuse. And he'd been doing it for decades by the time he got convicted. And I was, and I sat in the room with women who told me their story, who said they were also abused by Alfred Parker. So, you know, and all fairness to the respect for the teachings, you know, the organization has challenges and they still are acknowledging that Ivan Shearing did what he did. He was the leader. They're just referring back to Alfred Parker, who was the founder of the organization as the source of the teachings. And uh, so I just needed to say that, you know, I respect the book and I'm grateful for what it's done for me. And, and I'm grateful for the people in the organization who, really helped this young man who was kind of, you know, looking for answers. They were very kind, many wonderful people. And as so often happens in these organizations, you know, there was a pretty unhealthy dynamic and yeah. people didn't want to face it. So, Well, it's a good lesson in discernment, isn't it, that you can take the message and leave the messenger behind? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. what's well said. Yeah. Well, book number three is one that probably is in our top five. It's mentioned so often. <laughs> and that is Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And I'm always fascinated to hear what different people got out of this book. I mean, I love it. Loved it. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, if we're looking at you know getting control of your time in your life, it's kind of a, you use a time management system, and you you have to exert discipline and structure, and you own know, reason and anal analysis, and then the the relationship between mathematics, language, and consciousness. You know, it's very kind of technical in some ways. There's a system, and you learn the system, and you learn the qualities of the numbers and how they relate to each other, and you learn cycles, and you learn individual and country cycles, and world cycles, and all types of cycles. So it was pretty technical. And then I read Paramahansa Yogananda's book and it was this book of mysticism and wonder and these nonlinear magical kind of things that happened. And it was just such a nice contrast, you know? And I'd had some, you know, some pretty interesting experiences at that time, but by that time in my life, and it really opened the door to, okay, you, didn't, you do need to have a solid foundation in your, in your framework of life and you need to respect you know, mathematics and language and, you know, the sciences. And, and if you do that, and if you have a strong enough foundation, you can almost afford, the way I thought about it, 
if you're grounded enough, you can afford you can afford to reach out and be safe. Because a lot of people were doing all kinds of things in the communities that I was part of. You know, they were experimenting with, you know, uh, different psychoactive substances and things like that. And you know, it's like I didn't want to do that until I felt I was grounded enough that I could trust that I could come back to my life and you know and have a good life, which was a struggle enough at the time as it was. So Paramahansa Yogananda just painted like a picture of that possibility for me. It's like, yeah, okay. One day I'm going to, I think I'm going to be able to experience these things one day and I'll have my feet underneath me enough that I can come back to the world and, and, and be grounded, if you will, because there's a lot of people in the spiritual world that, you know, they're nice people to be around, they're loving, but they're, the rest, like their material life is, it's not abundant. And nature is abundant in its essence. And so it's not that the world, you know, in spite of its challenges, the world isn't the issue. I think it's more us than the world. I think yeah. the world isn't very naturally abundant. Mm. Would you say that this was the first spiritual book that you read? Well, oddly enough, when I was reflecting on what spiritual means. Um, inspirational, I think. Oh, inspirational. Yeah, well. I was pretty excited about the possibility of being able to create a different life than my parents. So I was inspired by that. And I always thought that uh, having conscious control, at least, so my, my thing is, I think we, I'd like to have a fair bit of conscious control over my life. And then I'd like to be able to turn it over to some higher power and really enjoy that possibility that exists there, right? So we had these 3D bodies. We had to feed them, clothe them, and exercise them, and take care of them. We got to, you know, manage our money as a reasonable adult. And but at some point, you just want to relax into that, you know, that peace that passeth all understanding, that blissful experience. The realms that Paramahansa talks about so eloquently. You know, there's kind of this, you know, this dance. I suppose I mean, people call it a dance. I yeah. like that metaphor. So I'm, I'm a little more technical, I think, than maybe than most people, but that's how I, that's how I see it. Mm. Book number four, What Colour is Your Parachute? <laughs> by former Episcopal clergyman and member of High IQ Society Mensa, oh, Richard Nelson Bowles. Yeah. <laughs> this book remained on the New York Times bestseller list for more than a decade and has sold over 10 million copies. Wow. Well, I was a poor, employed, struggling, um, you know, person who, um, you know, who wanted a different career. And I, was, I just, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't able to create it. And uh, I look back now, it's pretty obvious why I wasn't able to create it. But at the time, I, you know, it's like, well, what do I do to have a better career? And, you know, I didn't have a lot of money to get professional help. So I started looking for career planning books. Everybody came, you know, everybody said, oh, what color's your parachute? You had to look at that. So I read it and read it. I probably read it. I'm sure I read it a hundred times. Went through all the exercises in the book. And um, eventually it led me to um, hire a, a couple of career planning companies. One, I went to, I went once a week for a career coaching session and once a week for a group session. They had like, it's kind of a, uh, career planning company so they had individual sessions and they had this group um, meeting once a week with the, most of the clients came and they did that for three years and so um, and I was working for a private school at the time 
and it really helped me transition into doing career counseling at the school. So, so What Colors Your Parachute was the bridge for me to help me start to get a sense that, you know, and, and get hope that I could have the career that I wanted. And that was really best for me because, you know, what we want and what's best for us. We're not always good friends, but. Uh, Did you know what that would look like or which direction that career would go? I mean, did you have an idea? Was it engineering? Was it, you know, technology? Was it something else? Well, I started to, I started to work through the process of going out and interviewing different people that I, that I would like to be like. That was part of what they suggest in the book. And so that opened some doors, but I just kept getting stuck. I think it was the, you know, the frustration of just seeing my parents do the same thing over and over and over again forever. And they were still doing the same thing and they're just buying more houses and they never took holidays. I never, like, there was always this, I call it artificial self-deprivation. You know, when you grow up dirt poor and it's like, you just keep saving money and putting it away and you're, you know, money is not going to fill that hole at some point. It mm-hmm. just isn't. And they were still doing that. And, you know, my father's passed, my mother's alive. And, you know, I'd like to see her enjoy her money more, but that's, that's her journey. So um, at the time, it, it took me a long time. I, I feel like I had to work five times as hard as anybody else at it. But and now I have an extraordinary career. I mean, I'm like, I nailed it. I mean, you know, there's a few different things I could do, but I really, I really spent a lot of time on that and a lot of energy and a lot of money. And I got all kinds of assessments and I probably did, you know, 80 interviews with people that I thought were interesting. And that really made me face the reality of what it would take to be that person. You know, and it's like, wow, that's like this roots seven years of education. This roots yeah. four years of education. How's that going to happen? So I just, you know, I kind of patchwork a path together. And over time, you know, I took stuff part-time like many people do and got training and eventually it worked out. Good. Yeah. Very sobering. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because you strike me as um, a very methodical left brain committed person who sticks at things you know who really when you want to find something you you really get into it don't you and you I would think you examine it from all sides and I find that very interesting with the work you're doing now um you know but we'll we'll talk about the work you're doing now later for now let's move on to book five which is new speak in you Speak by a man you regard as the best presenter you've ever met, Jeffrey Lane. This book was published in 1999, and you got to know him personally. Yes. Um, I was working in education and training field since about 1984. So by then, I'd been in it for quite a while. I'd been a coach for four years. And opportunities to do presenting or public speaking came up. And... uh, I think most studies say that uh, public speaking is the number one fear of humans in the world. And I actually think it's being shamed in public, but that's, you know, another topic. Sometimes that's that's the same thing. Same thing, yeah. (laughs) I 
think we lost you then for a few yes. minutes. Yeah, we just lost it for a few seconds. So we were talking about being shamed in public. <laughs> yes, the fear of being shamed in public, which is equated to the fear of public speaking, which is higher on the fear scale than, you know, death in um, uh, dying in uh, deep water, apparently. Like the fear of deep water is one of those things, you know. Um, so I did some Toastmasters and I did some speaking training. And then I seen this guy, Jeffrey Lane, present somewhere. And he was like, it's like, you know, technical skill and then art. And then there's something else that happens, right? You know, when somebody is just extraordinary. And he was the presentation coach for the 2010 uh, Olympic Committee eventually. Um, so I, you know, I took his training and I finally understood there's a, there's a system, you know, and I'm kind of a systems guy. So he showed me the system for speaking and I'd, I'd come across it from Toastmasters but I never really met a master. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's, there's technical skill, there's artistry, and then there's, you know, there's masters in the world, master painters, master sculptors, master speakers, and Jeffrey Lane is one of them. And, and um, so he was a, yeah, he was a, he helped me get over that. And also, you know, kind of gave me hope for other people because people were terrified, you know, public speaking, they'd rather do just about anything. And I don't know if I'm that good at it, but I'm not really afraid of it anymore. I just know I have to put the time in ahead of time. I mean, a lot of people fantasize you can just give up and give a great speech, you know, extemporaneously off the top of your head. No, it's a planned, it's a planned presentation. The good ones are planned, you know. You know, there's a theme here because you talked about, you know, the first book being all about time, managing time. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, you know, the really the best speakers and the best comedians, the thing that they've mastered is timing. They know oh, exactly yeah. how long to leave it before they drop, you know, oh, the punchline yeah. in. That's true. You know, that yeah. is true. Yeah. So there you are, your system's all about time. <laughs> and talking of time, it's time for us to take a short break. So you're listening to a No BS Spiritual Book Club interview and sharing the 10 books that had the biggest influence on his life journey is Clayton Stedman. And we're going to learn more after we come back from the break about Clayton's books and the work he's doing now, which... I find quite fascinating after discovering what we've learned about you as a systems guy. Stay tuned. Home Times TV. Maya Angelou once said that there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. I'm Sandy Sedgbeer. And when I'm not hosting Omtimes Media's flagship radio show, What Is Going On, and the No BS Spiritual Book Club, I help people share their untold stories. Books are my life, my joy, and my passion. And there is no greater reward than helping aspiring writers get their books out of their heads and into the hands of those who are waiting to read them. If you feel that you have a book in you, but don't know where to begin, visit sedgebeer.com, click on the Work With Me tab, and find out how my experience helping others tell their stories might be just what you've been looking for. That's sedgebeer.com, S-E-D-G-B-E-E-R.com.
Imagine becoming a super influencer. Reinvent yourself, invest in your brand, and then manifest your success with a robust, spheric approach. Own Times Media and Broadcasting offers a unique and multifaceted way to become the spiritual and conscious influencer you deserve to be by putting your message across our powerful platform with its proven record of integrity and excellence. Through our produced shows, Own Times offers the opportunity to become a social media TV personality, a radio show host, an Own Times magazine columnist, and a syndicated podcaster, all in one shot. By live streaming your show on Ohm Times TV and broadcasting it across the extensive Ohm Times radio and TV networks, you become more than a host. You become an ambassador and a force for positive change. Ohm Times, open yourself to the possibilities. I wanted to talk to you about a program called the Dream Arc and a retreat that we're doing, and I want to invite you along. And the Dream Arc is a, is a dream technology. And, and even the latest physics is suggesting now that reality is not what we think it is, that it's kind of a construct. And that the dream arc teaches us how to use the full operating system to navigate our brain frequencies between waking and sleeping and dreaming and to move through the inner realms and the outer realms seamlessly. And you will work in the dream arc with certain animals that will come to you, maybe in real life, maybe through your intuition, in magical ways, or perhaps through, you know, just dreams that come to you. It's filled the dream up with invitations and suggestions and tasks that you, you choose intuitively. You choose the ones for you. You don't know what you're choosing, but they come to you. You know, so please join us as we dive down the wormhole into the dream arc and let's see what happens. There are 16 million children struggling with hunger in America. That's one in five daughters, sons, neighbors, and classmates who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Yet billions of pounds of good food go to waste every year. It's time we do something about it. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks that helps provide meals to millions of kids and families in need. Visit feedingamerica.org to help them feed even more. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Welcome back. Clayton Stedman, we are now moving into the five other books. And it's quite interesting. I was just having a quick look down the list that you asked earlier, you know, well, what is spiritual? And I said inspirational. The first five mm. books were definitely inspirational. They gave you inspiration for different things that you needed to do. These books I would classify as definitely spiritual as opposed to inspirational because they're all about consciousness mm -hmm. so the first one is power versus force by world-renowned psychiatrist physician researcher spiritual teacher lecturer and author dr david hawkins and this one's been translated into over 25 languages so when did you come across this book how did it come into your life it came into my life in 2003 now, I'm usually not great with dates and years, but this one was pretty, pretty influential. I was active in my coaching practice at that time. I'd started, I transitioned into uh, the coaching field after all that career planning thing uh, process I was uh, explaining. I was out of the education business 
uh, in terms of working for schools. And I was still actually in the education business, but I wasn't um, working for schools full time. I was uh, I took training and coaching and um, and ended up working for schools because I had a lot. I had eleven years experience at that time in them. And um, I mentioned all this because I had coaching clients who kept telling me about power versus force. Power versus force. You got to read power versus force. You know when like five people tell you you got to read a book. It's like you know usually it's time to read the book. Universe is trying to tell you something. So I read Power versus Force, and it was like, wow. If this is true, if you can measure truth, that's a game changer. At the time, I was, you know, I was 39 years old at, uh, well, 38 at 2003. And I'd been working in the coaching field for about 10 years. And I was on the cusp of going into, uh, you know, with business as a spiritual path was my specialty. And, uh, and I was looking at going into helping cultures and organizations change because the power in the world, I, I believe in this day and age is in, in the world of business and finance. It used to be in religion, um, might've been in the arts at, you know, during the Renaissance period, but certainly I felt in this day and age, it was in business. So if you want to do the most amount of good in the world with the least amount of effort, you go where that tipping point is or that critical factor. And, I thought that was business. So I read Power versus Force and I was just flabbergasted at the possibility of it. So I formed a study group of two people. One was a chiropractor who was 89 years old, still practicing. And the other was a, a scientist who worked for DuPont Chemical for 25 years and just retired. Lovely men. Uh, they're good men. And they were interested in, in figuring out how to use kinesiology and if they could get some consistency with it. So the one gentleman... He understood process, procedure, and protocol because he was a, a biochemist with DuPont. And um, the other gentleman understood the body well. He was a chiropractor. He's 89 years old. He'd been practicing for like 54 years or something. It was maybe even longer than that. He had, I think he had another career before that. And um, so we formed a study group and we tried to get kinesiology to work and we drove ourselves crazy for six months. We're meeting once, twice a week, and we could not get really consistent results. And all of our friends who tried it, they couldn't get really consistent results. And then uh, one day I read page uh, 117, paragraph two, for the, maybe the 10th time on the Christmas break of 2003, 2004. And uh, that paragraph says something to the effect of, you may find it interesting to calibrate the level of consciousness of your inquiries. So if you can't get kinesiology to work consistently, it's a paradox to try to measure your inquiries using a technique that you can't get to work. But that gave me a clue. And the clue was that if you read the protocols in the back of power versus force of how to do kinesiology, he doesn't say measure the level of consciousness of the inquiry. So it's like, well, I started to think, well, what else does he talk about how to do kinesiology well and doesn't put them in the protocols? So I read each of his 12, well, he, read, he wrote uh, nine books when he was alive. He didn't have nine out by then. But I read everything he had, and I read each book at least 12 times, because I know because I wrote the beginning and the end of the dates when I was reading them. And I started finding these little techniques or hints peppered throughout the books. That took me five years and 2.5 million calibrations 
to get what I can consider a complete set of protocols. And I believe the reason that people don't uh, or can't find ways to use kinesiology in the ways that they would like because the protocols are incomplete. That's the first part. And then we have issues with certain topics in the world that we can't test on because our stuff is in the way. So if you have a team of kinesiologists who are accurate in at least some ways that you can prove, then you can test each other's ability to test the accuracy on certain things because they have stuff or issues with those things or those topics. So that's a bit of a, you know, a segue answer, but that's the story. And that changed my life. I started creating assessments for my clients and I measured their conscious in different ways. And people started really changing quickly. Like it was a next level. Mm. They knew what they're, you know, we could measure their stuff objectively and they kind of knew it, but they didn't, there were some subtleties that were hard to distinguish because yeah, you know, you know, understanding yourself was kind of difficult at times. He was an extraordinary man. Did you ever get to meet him? I met him twice. And uh, in fact, uh, he signed my, well, he signed all the books I'd bought at the time. This is a signed copy of Power Versus Force. <laughs> this is, uh, I know I'm kind of a geek here. This is Doc's signature. Of course, he probably signed 100,000 copies, but, you know, I do have mine. Well, you actually gave two other books by him as uh, two of your 10 best. One was Truth Versus Falsehood, How to Tell the Difference, and the other one was Transcending Levels of Consciousness, The Stairway to Enlightenment. Um, what did you take from both of those books? Well, Truth Versus Falsehood, I mean, Dr. Hawkins did you know, hundreds of thousands of calibrations, created all these charts and all these graphs. He measured... Uh, the level of consciousness of different people in history, different gurus, different bodies of work, different religions, different philosophies. And I thought that kinesiology could, could be used that way, but I hadn't figured that stuff out. I was more about how do I measure, like, you know, pragmatic, how do I measure the level of consciousness of my clients? And then how do I calibrate the level of appropriateness of tools to help them grow? Because the more value I gave, the more I could charge, quite frankly, and the more I could help people, well, you know, I'm, I love to help people and I love, also like to get paid. So, um, and you know, more money meant more freedom and it still kind of does in general for most of us, unless we're financially free. I'm not quite there yet. Uh, so truth versus falsehood, just like, wow, look at the possibilities of kinesiology. I'm just scratching the surface. And, uh, and then, you know, transcending levels of consciousness, the pathway to enlightenment, I designed my whole assessments and my energetic medicine tools so that when, 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 when we measured people and we got there were a certain level of consciousness in a part of their life, they could go to the book, Transcending Levels of Consciousness. And Dr. Hawkins talked about how to transcend each of the levels. And he did it in 50 point integers, like the Hawkins map is one to a thousand in the human realm. I won't go into that, but so I could plug my assessments into his book and it's like, wow, that was that was just magic right there. So, you know, when I was uh, looking into him earlier, um, he is a sir. Yeah. And I, when I heard that, I thought, well, who knighted him? Because I don't think, you know, the Queen would have done it. But apparently, he was knighted by the Sovereign Order of the Hospitality 
hospitaliers of St. John of Jerusalem by the authority of the priory of King Valdemar the Great. I think that's a king of Denmark. Um, amazing. Yes, and that's been verified. There were some people who questioned it, and it was yes. verified. And um, yeah, yeah, he was yeah. an extraordinary, he was an extraordinary man. And, you know, and and here we see this. You know, I said at the beginning about the twists and turns that life takes, and now I'm beginning to see this segue through these books. You know, where the whole what I would call the right brain, you know, is coming on stream here. Um, you know, the next book is You Own the Power. Stories and Exercises to Inspire and Unleash the Force Within by the gifted medium, healer, and master teacher, Rosemary Altea. Um, so now you're getting into a realm that's a little bit more ephemeral, you know, less, you know, ta ta tangible in a sense, less tangible, uh, less organized, and I'm really enjoying where this is taking you. <laughs> Well, I felt I had a pretty good foundation by that time in my life. And uh, my, my father passed in 2004, February 13th. And in the last month, I lived in the hospital with him because he was, he was really weak and he had cancer and they had him on some experimental drugs. And, you know, we were hoping that he would recover and I didn't want him to get up in the middle of the night to try to go to the bathroom and fall and break a leg or something at that point that it probably would have been fatal. And um, so I lived with them in the hospital for a month at night. My mom stayed with him during the day and I spent the evenings with them at night and it was the best month of my life with my dad. You know, we, uh, we talked about a lot of things that I would have liked to talk to him about earlier. And there's things that we never, went to, there was kind of levels of depth and vulnerability that I would have really would have liked to have gone there with them, but we, we couldn't at the time. But what happened is that we had certain experiences in the room where, um, you know, these beings showed up and we started talking about it. And I don't know who brought it up first, to be honest with you. I might be able to remember if I really tried, but these beings would come into the room and eventually we started talking about them and I would, he would see them and then I would tell him what part of the room they were coming in from. And I wasn't a great kinesiologist at that point, but you know, I could check, I trusted myself enough to check the level of consciousness of the beings, but they were angelic beings and they were coming into the room and doing things. You know, we, I had a lot of people in the healing field because I was in, these different spiritual and personal development communities. And my dad was dying and I reached out and asked for help. And I had all these, I probably had people praying for him 24 seven, you know, and there's, there's groups on the internet. You can just go online and ask for prayers. You know, you just have to do your homework. And so I had this experience where all these beings are coming into the room and all these things are happening. And I, and we were talking about it and, you know, I was seeing more than he was, but he was seeing some things. I think as he was dying, the veil was thinning and he was like, everything I'm seeing, you're seeing. It's like, how come I, I, how come we didn't know we had this capacity? And I'd seen things before and had experiences, but at that point, it's like, I was always concerned that that, because there's a lot of intuitives out there that are really unhealthy physically. They're just, you know, it's, it's hard on people, even to this day. And I'm pretty good at it. Um, 
it's a challenge to manage having a healthy body and, and that, and having one foot in one world and one foot in the other. It's a real challenge. And even though I'm technically good at the intuitive part, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm really good at managing the effect it has on me. I, I pay a big price to do that work. And, um, you know, and it's, it's very intoxicating. It's very, it's very, um, very opening. And, you know, you get insights that it's like, to figure that out, you would have to spend years of doing experiments. That's the part. And, you know, and, you know, in the work that I'm doing now, we invent, you know, we've invented this technology and there's just no way we have the technical ability to invent what we've invented. We just do not have that ability. It is a gift from the divine and we prove that it works, but we get the gift and then we create the technology and then we prove that it works and then we use it for the benefit of humanity. But there is no way that I can even imagine that we would be able to do it. It would take us a hundred years of education to learn all these specialized technical skills. You know, we do have scientists that, um, that sort of take us through a, a set of procedures to verify it. But that, so that's kind of the, the, that was the big opening, you know, and Rosemary's books taught me that it could be a profession as well. There's a bit of a system to it. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to get out of my depth and go out into those worlds without the foundation, you know, to, to come back and, and have a good life. And that was one of the things that I, I probably read, honestly, in the year after my dad died, it took a bunch, I took six months off and just hung around quite frankly. And I, and I really got into reading uh, books about, you know, psychic, the psychic world and the intuition and, so I had these experiences as a young man and I didn't know where to put them. I pr I'm sure I read 50 books. And, um, but that one in particular came to mind. And so there is a system, you know, there's a, there's a way to do it safely. Um, and it's just really difficult to do it well and have a healthy body. That's my experience. Mm. Yeah. Book number 10 that's probably what some might consider to be the most far out book on your list. The Sasquatch message to humanity channeled messages received and written by Sunbow. And you've chosen book two interdimensional teaching from our elders. And you said you've had your own experiences with this race of beings. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I've had quite a few experiences and, um, for those who are good at kinesiology, you can check the level of consciousness of that book. I get it at 840 out of 1,000, which is one of the highest books of our generation. And uh, their version of history and the nature of you know, the cosmos that we live in and the evolution of different species is, is very different than anything most of us will have read. And uh, yeah, it was... Um, bit of a stretch for me to put that one out there but you know it has changed my in my my relationship that I have with these with these beings or my experiences yeah that's changed my world and uh, for the better they're an extraordinary race of beings and um, what was the most important thing would you say that you've learned from them Probably hard to 
distill yeah, it down to one thing. Well, I'm gapping on that one. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a good question. Well, I'll just say that um, mm -hmm. you share, uh, and you know, if you go to the website, you can read um, Clayton and all the other guests' um, descriptions of these books, which often, you know, have different information than they may share on the show. But one of the things you say is that this book tells a history of the Earth and our cosmos from a very different perspective than most of us experience. And you've seen bits and pieces of this history. Um, and you think this is the best summary. I haven't read this book, but I think I will now. Yeah, there's another book that uh, I was going to put on the list. It was, but I can't, I can't remember the name's author. But there was, um, yeah, it also calibrated 840. And the version of history of the cosmos was very similar to what's in Sasquatch's message to humanity. Mm. So, I like, well, I want to talk in the time that we have left about Focus life force energy because I was having a conversation actually before we came on air with my daughter in law and she was trying to get her head around how it works. <laughs> and I said, Well, good luck with that one. Um, and you know, how impossible it is to explain how it works, but there are enough people who have experienced for themselves how it works. Um, what can you tell us about it? Well, it's based upon the principle of quantum association, which is very much like the way the human brain works. So when you are praying for somebody, you're holding a unique identifier in mind, and you are in prayer, you're sending them a loving thought. If they're sick, you might be sending them a thought for their health. Uh, if they're physically sick, if they're mentally ill, you may be, you know, sending them a thought of, of mental health, but there's still a particular bit of information in the field. And it's oftentimes uh, consciously or unconsciously a, a request to uh, divinity, universal consciousness, God to help to assist, not always, but often. So we came across this inventor who um, was trying to create a free energy device. And I was very sick at the time. I was close to passing. My father passed from cancer. My mother had cancer and I was diagnosed as well. Um, so I was using kinesiology to find the most appropriate um, healing modalities. So I was doing, you know, alkaline diets and massive doses of vitamin C and enzyme therapy and all kinds of things. And I came across this technology that this man had created, which is a type of technology. And he had the best machine anywhere that I had found. And he was a bit of a recluse living up in the backwoods. And he'd been working on this for, at the time I might've been working on it for about seven years. He didn't find a way to create free energy device, but he did find a way to focus life force energy. And um, so he had these crystals and cones and stacks and it kind of pulled energy from the ether. And he used uh, you know current at the time to accelerate it. And then he had this little output stack and at the bottom of the output stack he would put crystals in there and charge them up and put them around his house and his house was like really high it was a really high consciousness area and he would even charge up big crystals and take them to the restaurant that he could go to and leave them in there and you know he was he was a beautiful man and, uh, and he helped me and I think he probably saved my life 
so I got to know him. We became friends, and I helped I helped him a lot with his research. And uh, eventually, we discovered like one day he was on the phone. He was talking to his friend in Europe, and he had a piece of marble uh, tabletop that had, he'd found in uh, he'd found somewhere. It was a broken marble tabletop, and he put the piece in there, charged it up. He had it in his hand. He was on the phone with his friend, and we got off the phone. He noticed that the arthritis in his hand was gone. The pain was gone. And uh, he thought that was really interesting. And in about two weeks, it came back, right? So the charge from the crystal had gone in, or the tabletop had gone into his hand, and his pain went away. So he started talking to his friends all over the world, and he started sending them pieces of this <laughs> countertop, and they were holding it in their hand, and the arthritis would go away. He was getting pretty old at the time. So we figured out that we could take a picture of the marble. I, and I got the download about that, put it in the machine, and it would charge up the marble instead of having to courier this marble back and forth all around the world, because that's what had to happen. And then some people started putting vials of water on top of the marble and spraying the water when they were out if their, if their arthritis was bad, you know, because they couldn't, you know, strapping a piece of marble to your knee wasn't really working, right? So they would spray water on it. And so that was the beginning of that whole body of work. And I was at a place in my coaching practice where you know, I developed all these, this intellectual property, but I, and I, and I had a great practice. I made a good living, but I felt I could do a lot more. And so I started praying about what to do. You know, what's your will for me, Lord? I'm kind of, I know I was in my own way. And um, I got told to start this business with Jeff and, uh, and that I could, you know, one day I'd have enough resources if we were together. He was a much better businessman than I was. I was a pretty good researcher, but he was a better businessman. So he, um, we got together and I got told at the time that if I, uh, if I did this business with Jeff, I would very likely have enough resources one day to go back and bring all this research on kinesiology to the world. Um, because I think if you're going to bring a body of work out that is unique and has some integrity, uh, you have to have enough uh, capacity in your life to manage that going out into the world because it represents a type of power and you know and a lot of people have a lot of people have created good things but they don't have the power to manage it in the world their lives get yeah. destroyed yeah you know? yeah so yeah yeah so that's kind of how uh, focused life force energy got started we we found that we could you know eventually we 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 found a way to connect that output st stack where that, you know, high consciousness field was where you put the crystals in. We found a way to connect that to a database and we could make these requests to divinity that if we put a unique identifier in like a latitude or longitude coordinate, it would raise the level of consciousness of an area. And so before 2012, we were, you know, meeting eventually every day in the morning and we were finding the lowest consciousness place on a continent, putting a level of consciousness field on it through this technology and raising the level of consciousness of that area, and it would raise the whole continent up. I mean, maybe not that much, but it did help. Um, and we wanted to sort of support the world to make this transition that everybody was talking about in, you know, in 2012. So we did that you know, to a degree we could, and then 2012 went by, December 21st, I think it was, 2011. And then early January, we were meeting, I was meeting with Jeff and we were just kind of enjoying not doing all this service work. And we had started FLFE at that time. I was still doing my coaching. 
Jeff had a couple of manufacturing businesses that were multi-generational and you know, we were praying and eventually, as I said, I got told to um, to start FLFE with Jeff and he had a sense that he'd really like to do this. So we started September 24th, 2013. It took a while to get everything organized and our 10th anniversary is coming up in a few weeks. And 90% of the energy is broadcast free to refugee camps and places in need. There is what's a principle the ultimate of, goal with this? Well, to support the evolution of consciousness. Mm. Like help our fellow man, you know. Are you, when you hear, read certain things going on in the news, certain people who are doing things that, and not necessarily in the interests of humanity. Do you beam the energy at wherever they are, or are you not allowed to without their permission? Well, there's a law of non-interference in the spiritual world. Mm. You can pray for somebody. You can't go over to their place and tell them how to run their life. And we don't have the authority or the right, and we don't create high consciousness fields beyond the threshold of the law of non-interference. We've never done that. And I'm glad I trust Jeff and I this way because we do get triggered by some mm. people and groups of people who somehow assume that they have the knowledge and the authority to run the rest of the world without even being elected. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, if somebody said, this sounds interesting, I want some of this. I mean, you can actually broadcast this to people's telephones. Can't you? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, a telephone number is a unique identifier. Yeah. So the high consciousness field can go around a telephone or a pendant. You just take a picture and send it in or an address. So any, yeah, they can do a free trial, no credit card needed, you know, and try it for a few weeks. And I, I like one of the things that you say to people because it is something that people can say, well, I can't feel anything, you know, or I don't really know. And you say, well, turn it off. You know, they have the ability mm -hmm. to go online and turn off their particular broadcast and then turn it on again, you know, so that they can actually feel the difference. Um, do you find that a lot of people say, because I can't feel it, it can't exist? Well, we have a list of 27 ways to discern the influence of a high consciousness field. And so not feeling it, you may recognize it in other people in the environment. You may recognize it in your pets. You may recognize it in your plants. So we usually go there with people. We do have some people say they can't feel it. And you know what? Oftentimes we'll get to the place if we have to, you know, just trust yourself. We're here to help people, empower them. And if you trusting yourself that you don't feel it and you don't use a service, if that helps empower you, then we've done our job. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So some people don't feel it. They never have uh, by it anyway because they see it's a fact. Uh, and other people try. Right and, and it can know. help with physical ailments? Encourage people. There's a control panel. 
Well, the body is incredibly resourceful. The innate intelligence in the body knows what to do to keep it healthy. And so when you're in a high consciousness field, the body will naturally uh, use the extra energy to heal. So we don't make health claims, but as a principle, it's the same as going to a pilgrimage site. People go there because of healing, physical healing sometimes. They go there for abundance, for fertility, for all types of things, you know, to find the right partner in life, the right, um, yeah, right spouse. So high consciousness fields are known throughout history to have extraordinary capacities within them to help transform us. And so our intent is to give you that possibility every moment of the day. And you said earlier on that when you were younger, you know, you were looking for that career that satisfied several things in you. You're no longer looking for that career, are you? I am blessed with my career. I really am. Like, yeah. I mean, I've worked hard at it, but I thank the grace of God as well or some higher power because I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in a great career. Yeah. Clayton Stedman, thank you for adding your 10 best list of spiritual books to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's Library of Recommendations. I really like the way that yours, you know, it was very transparent, you know, the change in you, how these books moved you through the years. Thank you. Well, thank you for, uh, for doing this work, Sandy, in the world. And uh, it's nice to see you again. And, uh, yeah. And bless you. Likewise. So Clayton Stedman's 10 Best List can be found at the nobsspiritualbookclub.com and you can learn more about high consciousness fields, focus life force energy and all of their ongoing research at flfe.org. It is .org, isn't it? It's .net, actually. Oh, it's .net. Okay. Yeah. We have yes. .org and .com as well. But... Okay. Yeah. That's it. That's it for this week. I'm Sandy Sedgbeer. I'll be back at the same time next week with another 10 best interview for the No BS Spiritual Book Club. Till then, it's goodbye from me. And thank you to Clayton Stedman. <laughs>